Before we get into this week's episode, I wanted to remind you that my short story is available for free at johntilton.com. If you sign up for my newsletter, I'll send you both the ebook and audiobook of Doomed Dune. In this middle grade adventure, a girl named Melina travels to a forbidden landmark guarded by tyrannical robots, but her life turns upside down when she discovers the true reason it's off limits. Discover Doom Doom Secret by heading over to johntilton.com. That's J-O-N-T-I-L-T-O-N.com. Thanks again, and I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to Cause of Craft. I'm your host, John Tilton. Why do we create? Where do our ideas come from? What does our craft say about us? These are the ideas we explore here on the show. Each episode, I interview a different guest, from writers and painters to musicians and filmmakers. Together, we investigate the creative process and the reasons behind why we create. On this week's episode, sculptor Bonnie Brushwood shares her artistic process with us, from having a conversation with her work to taking advantage of those happy accidents. We also discuss the importance of finding beauty in the world, how much an artist should say about their work, and how sculpture can be a therapeutic experience. There's also a special event coming up at the Doherty Arts Center in Austin, Texas. So if you're in the area on March 17th from 7 to 9 p.m., be sure to stop by to meet Bonnie and experience her sculptures in person. We'll have more info at the end of the interview and in the show notes. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to the show, Bonnie. It's good to talk with you. Thanks for having me. This is great to hear your voice. Yeah, it's good to catch up. Just some fun behind the scenes is I actually worked for about five years or so with your husband, who's a magician. So this is how I know you. And it's just always fun to talk with both of you and catch up every now and then. Yeah, it's it's delight. I know our, our kids were really enamored with you and your wife. So we, we liked being able to fill them in too. And on your website, you mentioned a bunch of different art that you've explored both currently and in the past, from oils and acrylics to calligraphy and even poetry you have listed there. And right now, your concentration is on sculpture. What led you to that being your primary focus? Well, sculpture was always my focus in college. And when I got out of school, it was just too expensive to be a sculptor because you have to house your work. And I did do some like Klaus Oldenburg-style giant sculptures that were cool, but then we just moved them from one apartment to another and they're huge. And I was just like, what am I doing? So I focused on the flat work that I could stack in a corner and and take from show to show. And and those move easier and are, are a lot easier, you know, a lot easier to work with. And then as soon as we got settled here at the bigger house, I found a studio that I could operate out of. And that set the stage for me to get back into sculpture work. And what is it that you like so much about that particular medium? I feel that it suits my skill set a lot better. Like I, I'm really good with form. So that that's my strongest, strongest skill as an artist is working with form and shape and sculpture, also the texture. So texture works its way into, into sculpture quite a bit. That surface design is pretty important. So uh, watercolor comes in second for me because uh, strangely, there's a lot of texture and depth when working with watercolor because even though it's flat, you're really using the paper in a way that's considering how thick you put on the paint, the texture of the paper, and those are some other things that that really 
kind of mimic what I'm doing in sculpture, but on a, on a flat stage. I, I was really frustrated with paint. I finally just said, screw you, paint. I'm done with you. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't plastic enough. Like I couldn't pull it off the, you know, I mean, yeah, Van Gogh did it, but guess what? Van Gogh's stuff has to be stored upside down for half of the year because the weight of the paint sags and it, it doesn't really have the structural integrity that you want from a piece that you call fine art. So it's awesome. It's beautiful. But they, I mean, Van Gogh is very hard to take care of. <laughs> you mentioned how important it is for you to manipulate things when you're at work. And I wonder how important that is for artists kind of across the board. Because I think about with writing, it's like, if you had to roll with so much stuff that's in a first draft, it's like, it's just not going to work. It's part of the fun is manipulating things. So it gets better over time. Is that something that when you're mentioning the manipulation of like the clay, for instance, that you're going into it with maybe a starting vision, but you find yourself doing a lot of adjustment along the way. Absolutely. I love having some space to grow the piece and let it, uh, let me and the piece have some conversation and the materials will sometimes tell you that you had a stupid idea and you better do this instead. And you've just got to go with it. So, and in fact, one of my favorite pieces, I, I work with the golden ratio. Like I, I use that as part of my basis for, for the shapes I create. And this one was coming out very egg like, and I, cut into it the way I do to open up so you can see on, on the interior, but it, a crack occurred and it was really cool because it, it did the exact arc, you know, when you get that golden ratio arc in there. So I just kept forcing that crack rather than stopping it. Like I was like, no, this is, this looks perfect. So that was just the conversation I had with the piece. I'm like, yeah, you want to crack? I want you to crack too. Let's, let's see, let's do this. And, and it was towards the end of that work. I'd already put in like a good, probably 30 hours into it. And then I'm like, uh, I might fall apart, but we'll see. <laughs> and, <laughs> but I didn't. And that one like got an honorable mention and, you know, all sorts of stuff. So like it was, it's one of the better, more dramatic pieces because I listened to it and it, uh, now if the crack wasn't working with the, with uh, my design approach, then I would have had to fix it. And sometimes I do, right? Like the only reason I kept that was because it was, it was arcing just perfectly. And why was it arcing perfectly. It was because of the shape I already had. So it just followed the line and exaggerated the the shape. So I was like, hey, that's cool. It's interesting you talking about like having a conversation with the piece. I, I interviewed a painter, his name's Evan Harrington, and he was talking about how he has a stage where he almost has the opposite kind of time where he puts it in the corner he's like okay now it's time out for you like I'm not going to talk to you for some time and I related that because I actually do that with like my writing as well it's like okay now I'm not going to look at you so with these conversations do you have some moments of silence as well or do you find yourself continually drawn to a piece while working on it you know that's interesting I, I do with other mediums but I can't do that with clay not for long because 
in order for the platelets on a microscopic level for the clay to have some structural integrity, uh, you have to be at a certain level of moisture and the new clay you add has to mix in with the old clay. So if what I, if I have a piece and I let it sit and dry too much, then adding new clay is, is, is going to just break it. It, it won't work. So, so I don't really put my pieces in a timeout. I do work on them very slowly. So I don't know my, like when I was a kid, my mom always had a time limit on our play dates. She was like, Oh, after two or three hours, you guys are sick of each other anyway. So everybody has to go home. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I guess like I spend about that much time with the peas and then I don't get mad at it. So like the next day I come back and I'm fresh and, and we're always happy. So yeah, but I, I, I definitely did that with painting. I, I have a painting that's been in timeout for three years. So <laughs> we'll see if I ever get back <laughs> to it. <laughs> and so you mentioned a story from when you were a kid, and obviously it's not a painting-related story, but you're relating it to, uh, or it's not a sculptor-related story, but you're relating it to your sculpting now. You mentioned also you studying art in college. Mm-hmm. How early on did you realize that you wanted to, whether it be for fun or taking more seriously, that you wanted to study art? To study art, I never really considered it as a career choice for me until high school. And I showed some aptitude in the in the art class that I took. Meanwhile, like I had had a little bit of a buzz in my high school because I would make really cool notes. So I would, I would draw these borders and then it, people I didn't know very well would ask, Hey, can I get it? Can I get one of those? And so like <laughs> I had this waiting list for the notes I would pass in class. And, and, um, I remember the, the high school teacher assigned a project where we had to do portraits. Like we had to look at somebody else in the classroom and, and draw them. And this is, really challenging. Like I was a beginning drawer, you know, like I did a lot of artistic decisions growing up. I was always a maker, but I didn't necessarily have a lot of drawing skills. So I found this to be really challenging and and nerve wracking because you're basically having to perform in front of somebody else with low skills. But he was really good about like, hey, you know, we're all beginners here. No big deal. Just try your best. But in talking about when he was a kid in high school and he had to do the same thing, he said, I remember I got paired with this girl and I thought she was so ugly. Like she was the ugliest person in all of the class. Like everybody was like, oh, that girl. And then I got paired with her, you know, and and he goes, well, I spent time with her. So, you know, I'm, I'm drawing her. I was like, she was actually really beautiful. It's just, she put her hair in front of her face and it's just like, she was, once I got past that, I was, you know, past like what everybody else was saying. And I really looked at her. It was like, because of that artistic process, my whole vision was changed. Like I was able to see her for who she was and she was really beautiful. And it, you know, and she, he did a great job on the drawing. He made it look beautiful in the drawing. And I was like, man, I like that because that's kind of what I do by doing art. I'm able to look at the world and make it beautiful or 
express the beauty in it. And that's important to me. And it makes my experience as a human better. And I think that's what really draws me to wanting to work in this fashion and the types of things that I do. And I was like, man, I want to do art. Um, parents would never let me. <laughs> so, so, uh, so I decided to, and, and of course they did. Like I, I said, hey, you could do art. They laughed at me and they're like, no. And then they said, okay, well, here's these schools. Look at the kind of programs. And I saw they had an advertising program. And I was like, dude, that's, that's great. I, uh, that's what I want to do. Like I could do basically now I have words for it. It's called graphic arts. I didn't even know what it was called at the time. So what I should have done was actually have some counselors in the high school that I could have talked with, but that was not available to me in my school. They didn't really care They're You know, they're just like, look, we're just here trying to get people graduating. Uh, my school is very poor district and not a whole lot of people went to college. So, you know, their attention was elsewhere. So I got into advertising, which was a mistake. And they go, no, you don't do art here. Like that's graphic design. Go talk to the art department. And I was like, well, okay. I looked at that and I was like, it's totally scary. Like I had no experience with computers. So I'm aging myself by talking about this, but I had a word processor that I did my papers on and it didn't have spell check and graphic design. I looked at this artist and they were walking in with like their own hard drives. And that was very intimidating. I'm like, what you have to have, like, you have to know about computers to do that. And I'm never going to own a computer. That's crazy. Uh, so I decided not to do graphic arts and instead got certified to teach and also I got a bachelor in fine arts. So I have, you know, a maker's degree and also an added year of teaching experience. So that was the agreement that my mom and dad and I, and I'm really thankful that, you know, our oldest is, is graduating and I'm going to pass it on and put her through school and not everybody gets to have their parents pay for their education. And I was so lucky. But the uh, the Butch Sims scholarship came with a little quid pro quos, and it was not getting <laughs> just to have an art degree. <laughs> and there were quite a few arguments. At one point, I was going to move off with my boyfriend and like go to like Boston or something and go to an art school. I'm like, screw this. I'm out of here. Really glad I didn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> and so the teaching, the teaching art thing was, uh, was just fine. It, it, it wound up being very helpful when I had my own kids um, because I felt like having just that bit of understanding for on how children learn was just amazing um, to be able to have three girls that, that I could help through that process. So you mentioned this story of the art teacher finding something, you know, beautiful, uh, when others weren't seeing that and how you have applied that to your own art. Do you see that and other themes in your work today that kind of cross over between different works? Like, do you find yourself kind of exploring a similar idea between sculptures? I, I recognize that. And, and I see 
a lot of artists that do it really well. I wouldn't say that's my focus, but I, I do like, I, I would say that as a high schooler, and this tends to be the way with high schoolers, is that they have very black and white vision, you know, well, the world should be like this, you know, this is the way it is. And, uh, and then you get older and you realize there's a lot of room for gray. Right. And I feel like art was my opportunity to engage with the world without a whole lot of judgment. And, and that's probably what motivated me at the time, but it isn't necessarily a theme that creeps into my work. Uh, more the, the themes that come in are quiet resolve and beauty in a way that uh, like uh, my mom and my brother, and then I'll speak out a little turn here a little bit, but brought to some extent, Brian, I'll have some anxiety that they deal with and I'm, I'm the chill one of the group. So, <laughs> uh, so I find a lot of comfort in that. And then I feel like my work really speaks to, to putting aside anxieties and choosing beauty. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it does. I, I mean, especially when you look at your work, like there is kind of a sense of like calm about it. And especially too, it's interesting to hear you say that because also, and you were talking about like that tear in the egg shape and just looking at your other work too, it's often like it feels like something is pulled apart in a way that in another sculpture might feel like it's like a violent destruction of it. But in yours, it does like feel more peaceful or like it's interesting to me because it's like, oh, look, it's like a torn open, but it doesn't feel like it, that's a bad thing. Whereas I think that like using the, like just, I'm at a loss for words for like how to describe it, but we'll have pictures and stuff like that on the website and on the Instagram, but it's just, that's really interesting to me. And then also something that stands out about your work is kind of, you have these like almost earthy tones and colors on the outside often. And on, on the inside, you have this kind of bright, like it might be a purple or a teal or something like that. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it just adds this kind of calming feel to it. Right. Uh, I, I get a lot of inspiration from nature and I feel I'm hitting the right note with my work. Because if you look at a seed that is bursting with a, a new sprout, right, like that sprout bursted through the shell and that's kind of violent, you know, in a way that it broke the shell to emerge, but yet it's all beautiful, right? It has, it has life it shows life and life is good. So in fact, uh, Teller came out to visit with Brian and I from, um, you know, magic duo Penn and Teller. And, and he's just like, Oh, it's just, I, I see these as having life bursting out of these cold designs. You know, it's very, I have some very formal decisions in the shapes and then there's a bursting through, and I felt like, oh, man, he really gets it. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> the idea of talking about art, there's kind of, you know, obviously I talk to different artists every week, but there's also something about like, well, how in-depth do you go? Because you also want, especially for a piece that like your sculpture, it's like you want the audience to be able to look at it and take their own things from it and not necessarily have your 
five page, you know, essay about what it means. <laughs> so do you find it tempting to explain your work or do you find like that you like to talk about the ideas that you were trying to get at in a piece? Yes. In fact, it's it's really fun that you mentioned that right after I mentioned Teller because, he, you know, when he came out, uh, he's like, oh, well, tell me about your process and, you know, what does it mean and everything? And I start talking and I'm kind of flubbing my way through. I go, you know, I have to be honest. This is the part I'm working on right now is the storytelling part of it because I find it very difficult to talk about my work. And then Teller says, I made a whole career about not talking about my art. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, oh, if there's one person that truly gets it, then it, then it is you. Because I, I was feeling pretty embarrassed at the moment. But um, I think what I always want is for the work to be able to stand on its own and say what it needs to say. But not everybody has an art degree. So it is a little bit of my responsibility to help the viewer with a way to interact with my work. But I don't want to dictate a five-paragraph essay on which, you know, on what they're supposed to to take away from it. And and I do really enjoy putting when I put on a show hearing what different people say about different pieces. You know, someone who is comfortable looking at art and speaking poetically uh, might connect with a piece and really have a lot to say, and it becomes very meaningful to them. That's the ideal. But I'm guessing a lot of that has to do with finding your audience, you know, finding people who are, who, who want to take that kind of journey with you. When you talk about that, you feel like a responsibility to, you know, bring someone who might not know as much about sculpture, like up to speed with certain things. Is that technique or like a, almost like an art history thing with how other sculptors in the past have done certain things? Like what certain aspects are you trying to instill into them? Well, I I do think that looking at what other artists are talking about, how other artists have approached certain concepts helps to speak to what you're doing. And I guess that's where we all are standing on the shoulders of giants. That's where I get to point to people that I I have admired from the past and say, well, they influenced my work like this. And you can see I do the same thing here. Uh, So you can teach how to look at your work or engage with your work by speaking about how people have engaged with other works that are similar. Can you walk through some of the process of creating a sculpture like I know there's the kiln involved and probably some molding and then glazing to get the color but I guess what's like a overview of what you'll do from kind of concept to having the final product right so I have a notebook that I carry around and I sketch out ideas and you know a little bit of a cheat I have is is the things that I get really curious about are are other people and like Sometimes there'll be somebody's personality that I'm like curious about. I'm like, hmm, how would I make them into a little piece of clay? I'm like, well, they're kind of, bo- <laughs> you know, they're kind of like really grounded. I'm just making this one up, but like, say, this person's really grounded, and yet they could be pretty flighty about something. So maybe I 
I start with like a really heavy bass, like very bottom loaded. And then it has a very long, skinny neck and then it flares out and is really open to gathering a lot of stuff at the top. So I would start, uh, I, I, I try to take a very relaxed approach to working with the clay. If I start to get tense, then it shows and that's when you get cracks and stuff. So I just kind of throw out the clay and then I start building up. And then um, I build until it just needs to set. Like I get as tall. And the first day it's about an inch tall. The next day it might be about three inches tall. And then the next day I add another couple of inches and so on. A part of the fun is like, like the piece I just kind of described would like take some acrobatics because you're limited by your material. So your clay needs to be supported while it dries so it doesn't just flop over. So my table will have contraptions like sponges and sticks supporting it, <laughs> you know? So then you wind up having this like crazy Rube Goldberg arrangement where it, it's set to dry and then I'm able to finish it up. And then wonderful thing is that I have my own kiln now. So that gives me a lot more freedoms than working within the constraints of a community kiln. Cause I can take a piece while it's still wet and I can put it in the kiln and I can let it dry. Now that eliminates about 50% of the breakage right there because moving a piece that's bone dry and ready to fire is very fragile. So getting to have my own kiln and it's just supporting that work until it dries is pretty great. And I also get to um, fire it. The firing process is very important. So my work tends to need a long candle and the candle being that you dry it out with the kiln and it's just baking at 200 degrees until all the, just that surface water is gone. And then I can fire it till it's like a fragile rock. That's called a bisque firing. And then you glaze it and then you stick it back in the kiln and then you fire it again. And you hope, you hope that the glaze does what it's supposed to. <laughs> and, and a lot of, I'm getting better at that. There's a, there's a lot of science with the glaze. And that's fun because it's like, one of my favorite things is cobalt. Like I have actual cobalt and water. I'm painting, you know, painting this on my work and manipulating it in a way. So if I put a little bit, then it it's a light blue. And then if a lot accumulates, it's a dark blue. And, you know, so that's the kind of stuff that the fun of glazing, but it can totally ruin your piece. Potters either, very few, I don't know very many people who actually like the glazing process where I'll just like feel betrayed a lot of the times. Like you did do what you said you're going to do. But. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned these limits and you mentioned like the limits of what you can do with the clay in the first place. And then also these different disasters that can happen. Now, obviously you mentioned already that that isn't fun in a lot of ways, but does it almost add like any sort of excitement or like, does it, does it add something valuable, even though it might be a negative emotion? Oh yeah, absolutely. Glaze can do some stupid things sometimes, which makes me mad. Like sometimes it just like 
falls off. And you're just like, what? And then, like, once it hits, like, the glaze process, like, when you get to the temperature, it's really hard to get more glaze on, right? So then sometimes you're just like, why did you do that? I, I don't get it. But so that that is frustrating and will always be frustrating. However, the really fun thing is that you got to plan because your pieces move when they sh- – because they shrink. Like, sometimes the clay can shrink up to 20%. When you put it in there and you fire it, it shrinks and moves and it and it twists around and it and it it takes on a little bit of life in the kiln and and that's cool. And then the glaze will, depending on how you glaze, it can take on a little bit of life by how it mixes with each other. Or I have a lot of movement in my work, and so I like to play with how I put the glaze on so that that movement gets accentuated. By that firing process, you're melting glass, and then the glass moves around, and then it cools down, and it finds its resting spot, and then and then it's a finished piece. So all of that is happening, and it is really exciting when it comes out cool. So, and and those those things that you can't necessarily control, but you can plan on happening, is fun. So that's where. Like, it's like a live performance, you know, like when somebody is a musician and they get out there and there's like, you know, they know the song, but then you get in front of an audience and somebody whoops out in the audience or there's a different kind of energy. Maybe you played the song faster because you're really excited, but it just, uh, uh, it takes on a life of its own. It's fun. And with how much the work is kind of shaping itself as you're creating it, I know you've mentioned that you have some ideas going into it, but do you ever start with a certain image in mind that you're trying to achieve or is it, are you mostly letting it flow out of you as you go and not worrying about any particular expectation that you might have? Right. Um, I, w- I would say a little bit of both. Um, mostly I- I'll know somewhat what I'm trying for now given some conditions, um, I talked about that drying time. So sometimes things will change because it, you just get into it and the clay is like, no, I'm already too dry here. So you're going to have to make other choices. So I'm like, oh, okay. And in fact, uh, I did a, a stop motion piece for a friend who has a music project. Like he's releasing music videos all year. And he asked artists to submit um, stop motion of them making their work. So there's a little stop motion animation out there with a, a Daniel Whittington's Secret Heart song. And the piece, because of all the camera work that went into it, it took like twice as long. And so like my whole process got a little bumped longer, which meant the bottom part of it uh, dried and broke right in the last 30 minutes of the <laughs> of the whole video project. And, and so then, uh, luckily I saw Brian walking along. I was just like, Brian, get over here. And so he, he cradled this, this head and broken neck. And I was able to, <laughs> to get some clay and save it, you know, last minute. So that one definitely, changed a lot but also because of the way it, it just in process it got bumped around a little bit and everything it came out looking way cooler 
So it was a happy accident, you know, a little Bob Ross moment. But um, there's a lot more movement in the hair, and she's kind of looking over her shoulder more. It turned out looking really cool. But uh, that happens on a smaller scale with some of the more abstract pieces where maybe it just gets wider than I wanted, you know? And then I'm stuck to, you know, I feel obligated to work within my assigned design constraints because I've, I strongly feel that's how I'm able to give the piece unity is by staying within those conceits. So let's say the piece is just coming out wider, but it's not wide enough to be part of my design approach. Then I got to make it wider, you know, because I can't make it smaller. So I'm just like, okay, well, you're going to be a wide piece. And now I got to make you really wide because that's what I say. That's how I make things is like this. So that might change the whole look just because one day the clay was wetter because it was raining outside and there was nothing I could do but just run with it, you know. And, and the, the fun thing about clay is that it, it changes from the humidity and stuff. So you're not only are you having a conversation with your clay, but you're also in the world, you know, like you cannot ignore that it's the middle of the summer and everything is drying as soon as you put it out there or it's February and it's, it's rained all week and my clay is super mushy because it's absorbed all this humidity. Then, then you just got to make stuff that will agree with that because if it flops over your piece is ruined. This is interesting to me too, based upon what you were mentioning earlier in our conversation about how, oh, a lot of people around me have like some anxieties or like, (laughs) you know, you're describing yourself as the one who might be able to stay a little more calm in certain situations. It seems like that's pretty much a requirement for this type of work. On the one hand, it sounds like, okay, this is something that I would never want to pursue because it's just too much out of my control. But then on the other hand, I'm like, well, maybe if I did pursue that or something like that, that would actually be kind of healing for me, uh, you know, when something goes wrong to learn just how to deal with it. Yes. um, You know, it was really interesting. So in a group, like a community kiln setting, there's about 30 people that rented from there. And I would say 10 of us were there during the time that I was there. And there was like a nighttime crew that would come in. But the group that we get to talk in, you know, you know how people do. And half the women there had kids with like some kind of extra thing going on. You know, like I, uh, my oldest has ADD and it's kind of not a big deal now that we finally know what's going on. But uh, uh, at the time I was like, ah, this thing at school and this and this, <laughs> you know, and then, and then you had this other one who, who her daughter had like a mood disorder and, and she's, you know, working through that. But I'm like, how come all of us are here working in clay <laughs> as we're like really frustrated with schools and kids and stuff? But uh, yeah, so there there might be a little something like, oh, we found clay and it found us and maybe that's good. But um, there is some science to show that working in clay is very therapeutic and that it activates the reticular joints and it's heavy, right? So like I'm picking, I'm doing heavy work. Like when, if you go to a a physical therapist, 
or like, like with the kids, they have um, uh, sensory therapy, right? So uh, they would have them do this heavy work, like picking up medicine balls and stuff like that. And, and playful, usually for kids, it's real playful. But for as an, as an adult, I'm picking up 25 pounds of clay. I'm throwing slabs that are probably like five pounds, you know, and I'm pound. I mean, it's kind of, it's, it's really involved. Like I'm really patting and mushing and using my hands in a big way and scraping at stuff. So uh, the physicality that is involved with clay has a, a, a real benefit for emotions and the body. I think some people come to different art forms because it's centering for them. So um, I found clay to be very grounding and very uh, helps me to keep my head about me, I guess. But uh, there's, there's different, different things that people are, you know, drawn to for different reasons, but I'm real happy working with this material. And at the beginning, we were talking about some of the other arts that you've explored, but haven't necessarily focused on. Now that you are focusing on sculpture, how often do you find yourself maybe taking a excursion for a weekend and doing some painting or something that's not sculpting just to kind of play around and get away from the clay? Yeah, um, I don't get to very much because now my career is kind of uh, starting to take off. So I I have to spend a lot of time fulfilling promises like um, I have a show coming up with the Doherty Art Center uh, where I've been a artist residence uh, since the beginning of COVID or a little before it was like, I was there for about eight months and then COVID hit and we've had this whole show going and, and, and in March I'm having my big show. We'll see if anybody can attend it. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. You know, uh, Austin stage five. So, so you might not be able to see it in person or you may, and please do go see that show if you can. But so, so my obligations are, are here, right? So I feel, but I also, I feel like all that exploration I did before has really set me up to be ready to stay where I'm at and, and the material that best suits me. I, I took calligraphy. Now the calligraphy was the funny one. Um, while I was doing the mom thing full, you know, with all my focus, because we had little babies and stuff, um, found it important to keep my skills up. And one thing that I knew I needed to work on was my my relationship to line work. Uh, that was also part of the choice that I didn't go into graphic arts, is I don't, I didn't feel like I had very good line work and wasn't confident in just you know, just if you know, Picasso can draw, but on a, and he has on a piece of page, you know, on a page and it's just lines and you're like, Oh, well, those are really great lines, you know, or, um, uh, but, but, uh, I didn't feel confident in that. So I took calligraphy and really got a sense by being really constrained in lettering it helped me to loosen up too. So, but the best thing was having Josie watching her because she's always been great since, since the very first time she started making marks on page till now that she's 14. Um, She has a great sense of line. I just watch her. I'm like, Oh yeah, I see that. And it's the way she holds her page, you know, her pencil or her drawing device and, and her posture 
how she looks at the page or things. So whenever I want to make sure I'm getting good line work, I, I copy Josie. <laughs> so she's my little <laughs> inspiration. But, uh, but that, that line work, you think, well, you do, you know, sculpture. So how does line work necessarily come into that? But, you know, all the edges need to be finished. And even though I have like a torn edge a lot of times to my pieces, there's a lot, a lot of thought about, well, is it pleasing or not pleasing? And, and I feel like I've spent enough time looking at lines because of that two or three years I did calligraphy that I can, I can tell whether it's pleasing or not pleasing. So you mentioned that you have a show coming up. Can you give us a little more detail, uh, especially for those in the Austin area who would want to see your work in person if that show does end up panning out? Yes, yes. Well, I am at the Doherty Arts Center as the resident artist for In Clay. And there's another woman, uh, Regina, who is uh, the resident artist for photography. And so she'll have the wall space and I'll have the, um, I'll have the stands and we'll be exhibiting, uh, in the middle of February through the end of March. Uh, so if the, uh, just check the website on the Doherty art center They're they're having to adjust, um, uh, because it's publicly funded, they are obligated to, uh, oblige by whatever the, uh, city of Austin is doing concerning COVID. So uh, if it's stage five, they may not be letting people in the into the space. But there will be an online um, way to look at the exhibit. Uh, I will certainly be posting stuff on my website and on my Instagram. I'm Bonnie Brushwood on Instagram. And but the show is supposed to be March 17th. So if we have an opening, I would love to visit with you in person, um, come out to the, to the show. I believe it's from five to seven on March 17th, if it's happening. But if not, you can make an appointment and go into a very uncrowded uh, space to look at the work while it's up. <laughs> and so obviously seen in person is, definitely the best way to see it. But for people who do want to take a look online, uh, what's your website that people can can view some of your work? Sure. Um, my website is bonniebrushwood.com or uh, also Sunshine Clay goes to the same site. So uh, I have two names for one site. The one thing that uh, somebody gave me some feedback and they said the scale, I, I don't have pictures with scale. So when you go to my site, uh, realize that these things are very big. They're about half a person tall for the usually uh, very large sculpture. And at some point I will update the photos to have some scale photos uh, to give you a sense of that. But uh, uh, I don't know. Of course, the, the pictures are smaller. They're, they're like a water pitcher. And that's what what I'm exhibiting is um, some functional, semi-functional work uh, with the Doherty Arts Center. So <laughs> it'll be interesting. Well, good. Thanks again so much, Bonnie, for coming on the podcast. It was, it was great to learn more about your art, and I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Cause of Craft. You can find details about Bonnie's art exhibit in the show notes. And if you'd like to see her artwork online, visit bonniebrushwood.com or follow Bonnie on Instagram at bonniebrushwood. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider sharing with a friend and leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Those two things really help the show grow. And if you have feedback, suggestions, or guest recommendations, send an email to john at causeofcraft.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.